you view it as an item on a to-do list, it will come across as supremely inauthentic. People will see right through it and it will have no resonance. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. So my guest in today's episode of the Inspire Podcast is Sanjay Patil. And Sanjay, uh, you're joining me from New York, right? Yes. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Bert. You've recently joined the Humphrey Group as a consultant, but your your credentials are numerous. I'll I'll try and uh, go through a, a short list here. I know you're you're a lawyer by training and uh, we'll talk a bit about your uh, career uh, in human rights uh, as a lawyer. And uh, you were also an ICF certified coach and you're serving as a consultant and you have um, expertise in the areas of facilitation uh, and, and mediation and so forth. So yeah, uh, eminently qualified to come on the podcast. Have I missed any of your uh, your credentials? Nope, only that I'm also uh, a husband and a father of two. That's it. Uh, very important credentials. Just for some context of why I was so excited to have you on the podcast, um, you know from recently joining the Humphrey Group that you know, we've expanded the focus of what we believe it requires to communicate as an inspiring leader. You know, whereas for almost 30 years, we focused on persuasion skills, you know, teaching people to present, teaching people to you know, give a speech. Uh, more recently, we've added to that stream of skills with a, a focus on what we call reflection skills, which really in the realm of self-awareness and connection skills, the ability to bring others together. And you bring unique expertise in this area, uh, partially your professional credentials, but also what we'll delve into is your personal journey. And so I'm really excited to have you on to talk through how better knowing yourself can lead you to becoming a more inspiring leader. Let's just start with you and your journey, because you've had a really fascinating career. You've done some amazing things that have led you to New York to uh, and to, to being on this podcast. So Take me back. Where does your career start? Uh, I'm originally from Toronto and grew up there, went to law school uh, at Osgoode Hall Law School, decided that I was going to initially begin my career on Bay Street as a lawyer, did not really take to the Bay Street environment and was always thirsty and hungry to get into human rights work. Uh, and after withdrawing my name from higher back consideration during my articling year, went on a six-month backpacking trip around Southeast Asia, East Asia, India. And when I returned, really decided to, with intention, delve more into the human rights field. Uh, was lucky enough to work on a commission of inquiry in, in Ottawa that cut my teeth on police reform, policing issues. And when that commission wound down, um, really had a hard time finding human rights work in Canada. 
And when an opportunity presented itself to move to India, I did. Uh, so I moved to Asia and first started working on police reform issues throughout South Asia for about almost three years, mm-hmm. then moved to Thailand in order to work with another NGO on rule of law issues. And whilst in Bangkok, then did some consultancy work for the UN while I was there and found it all incredibly fascinating when an opportunity presented itself to work for a philanthropy in New York, one of the world's largest philanthropies, the Open Society Foundation, uh, in a completely different uh, area of work, which was public health, actually. But they wanted somebody with a background on policing issues to help improve the way in which public health services were delivered to particularly marginal population. So I joined that um, foundation here in New York back in 2011 and was with them for a very long time in various capacities and roles. And that's when I really felt the compulsion to start my own thing, which was this mm-hmm. consultancy practice that I now engage in. It's, it's quite a journey uh, that you've had. And, you know, I know we'll talk about some of the the learning that you've, you've drawn from this journey, but that, you know, since the the theme that we're talking about is, you know, self-reflection can lead to you being more inspiring. Talk to me a bit about your own journey of self-reflection. You know, you, as you said, you started as a Bay Street lawyer, but you were drawn to human rights work. Tell me about how you reached that um, kind of clarity of purpose. Yeah, it's such a good question. I, there was this moment when I was getting called to the bar, you have to do these bar admission courses. And I had this, uh, as Samuel Jackson says in Pulp Fiction, this moment of clarity where it occurred to me that if you think about the world and how many people have an interest to work on human rights issues, that's a smaller subset of the, of the world's population. Then if you think about how many people who have that interest have the skills to actually do something specific in that realm, that's even a smaller subset. And then if you think about the third consideration, which is, okay, you you have the interest and you have the skills, but you have the opportunity. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to not graduate with a lot of student debt and had done a good job of saving. And so I had this uh, nest egg to then dive into human rights work that didn't pay very well. (laughs) So I realized I have have the opportunity also. Uh, And after that analysis, it occurred to me that after, if, if you meet all three of those metrics, you almost have a moral obligation <laughs> to to do that. Uh, and so I did. I felt like uh, it was a calling, and I felt like this is something that I have to do for myself. And as you, so that you had that, that epiphany, um, you know, uh, when you're called to the bar, and then you, you know, you pursued it. Did it stay with you? I mean, did that clarity of intention stay with you? Or was it was it challenged? Was it deepened? Was it diminished? Talk to me about how how reality, you know, intersected with what you had uh, what you had thought. It's interesting. Uh, I went on that six month backpacking trip, which very much was uh, a reflective journey, a, a really important journey, where I uh, deeply connected with this notion of unity throughout the trip. It just kept on coming up as a theme that you and I, uh, all of us as humans, are no different than one another, right? Mm-hmm. That notion of uh, something really intrinsic tying us together became 
a major theme of, of that trip and was the insight I brought home. And then when I wanted to translate that insight into work and actually doing something in that regard, uh, I experienced nine months of unemployment. Uh, <laughs> so I came back and I was desperately trying to get into this kind of work and finding myself stymied uh, in, in all the different opportunities I was pursuing. And it was the hardest nine months hmm. because I come from, uh, you know, an immigrant family, which really prioritized doing well academically. Um, I was always aspiring to be that A student, to do well with whatever I put my mind to. Uh, and it was an ego trip to come back and be unemployed for nine months. It was the hardest period and also the most important because, to your question, the learning and insight became very much grounded in real-life experience where it occurred to me during that nine months of unemployment, which was incredibly hard, that notwithstanding that I was applying for positions that I was probably objectively overqualified for, and not getting even a call back for an interview, mm-hmm. it occurred to me that we only have control over ourselves, our actions and our reactions. Hmm. And outside of that, we actually have no control or very limited hmm. control. And that learning, that insight has really stayed with me because I realized I was pegging a lot of my own self-worth uh, to what was going to be an external validation. Hmm i.e. in that particular instance, getting a job, getting a job that, you know, I wanted. So there was a lot of I and ego enmeshed in how I was thinking about things. And that nine months of unemployment really clued me into the fact that uh, we don't have control over all the variables uh, that exist in our life. We only have control over our actions and our reactions to whatever it is that we find ourselves in. So, you know, and, and I think this kind of is a, a good segue to, you know, what you've learned. I mean, this is quite a, quite the journey, you know, and I know we've only touched on it, you know, working at, on police reform in India, working on the Arar Commission. I mean, some amazing life experiences that you now draw on for the work that you do, you know, at the Humphrey Group as well, helping helping our clients inspire. So, what would be, you know, if we, if, if we, it's hard to distill into kind of big ideas, but what would be the three big things that you've learned and then how can people put them, you know, apply them to the task of communicating uh, inspirationally? I think the main learning that I have had over these past few years has been that it really requires intention to create the conditions by which people are heard and seen. I think that there is an assumption that that will happen organically, that will happen inevitably if you create a working environment where there's a lot of success, you're meeting your targets, that naturally people will be happy and satisfied in that kind of environment. And my personal experience has proven that to be not true, that just because you hit your targets and that you're overall reaching some uh, you know, quantifiable metric of success, if people don't feel heard and seen in that context, it will lead to being disconnected from what the mission of that particular organization is. It will cause disaffection 
in the working environment, you'll have higher turnover as a result. So I think that this idea of creating conditions by which people are heard and seen needs to be an intentional process and thought on the part of leaders. And if you don't do it, then it's just not going to happen. So Sanjay, let, let's start with you know this point that you've made that leaders really need to begin with the intention to create a space where people are heard and seen. And maybe you could tell me a bit about how you reached that conclusion through your career and your life, and then how you advise leaders today to put that into practice. Sure. I'll give you one concrete example um, with this notion of creating a space where people are, are heard and seen. Uh, I was asked to help facilitate a, a large human resource issue that had occurred in a previous place of employment. And there was disaffection amongst junior staff that was bubbling up as a continued issue within the organization. And there was a desire to address it head on. And they brought different people from different levels of the organization, different offices to come together to try to come up with recommendations on how to improve that situation. Mm -hmm. And the thing that the leaders did really well in that particular instance was they recognized that if this was going to work as an endeavor, that both the resources needed to be allocated to do that piece well, to really make sure that people had space to articulate their concerns and views, to have time for that insight and perspective, which was being offered by others, to really be incorporated into the next steps that people would do moving forward, uh, that all required both a commitment on the part of leadership and to back up that commitment with the requisite time and money that was going to be needed for that to happen. And as a result of that intention, the process was a success. Had they said, oh, we need recommendations to be issued in short order, there wouldn't have been that opportunity to create that space where people's perspectives were actually offered, heard, and embedded into the final product. Hmm. So it's really, rather than just acting, it starts with what kind of stepping back, thinking about what you're doing. How, like, how would you advise leaders today who are thinking about this need to create space to have others heard? How would you advise them to proceed? That is not a box ticking hmm. exercise. That's the really hmm. important point I would want to communicate, that I think that there is this tendency to uh, see the point I'm raising here around creating the conditions where, whereby others are heard and seen as an item on a to-do list. Right. And if you view it that way, if you view it as an item on a to-do list, it will come across as supremely inauthentic. Hmm. People will see right through it and it will have no resonance. Hmm. And have you seen organizations do that? Yes. I think the, I think the norm is that that's what happens yeah. actually. Yeah. And is it, and is that, uh, because they, like when you look at an organization that says, okay, I've got to do something, you can see the reaction or the, the need for the reaction, right? They, something bubbles up to the surface. There's kind of a societal awareness now of something like systemic racism or, or biases. Mm -hmm. They think, oh, we've got to do something. 
but what you're saying is that's not the right way to go, right? That you, it just becomes too reactionary. And instead you, it's, it seems like a deeper commitment has to be made, right? Yeah. And I think it's okay for uh, a corporation or an entity to clue into an issue because of, say, something tragic mm-hmm. like George Floyd's murder. Mm-hmm. That's fine. If, if there is um, an inflection moment that triggers an awareness, that can be incredibly helpful for greater insight and movement and motion that benefits those who belong to that organization. And the question is, okay, how? How do you do that? Do you do it as a pro forma exercise that satisfies the PR image you want to portray? Or do you actually slow down and take the time to actually decide that this is not only what we have to do, but in order to do it well, it requires a kind of strong commitment uh, on our part. So let, let's get uh, let's bring this right into the practical present because I think you know we have a lot of people listening who are leaders who are socially conscious who are aware of the need to be inclusive and often turn to this podcast with the Humphrey Group to say how so we know recently there's just been this unacceptable wave of anti Asian hatred and you know mm-hmm. we I think to your point just as a year ago George Floyd tragically brought to life, to light, I should say, the awareness of the deep systemic racism and inequity that exists against um, against African-Americans and black people in the world. So too is this unfortunately led people to be aware of just how pervasive anti-Asian hatred is. So leaders may be saying, we got to do something about this. We have to, you know, this is not in line with our values, not in line with our culture as a company. Let's put out a statement. Let's, you know, have a have a networking session then but you're saying hold on there's a better way to go how would you advise leaders who really want to do something meaningful and authentic to proceed well in this specific example of inclusive leadership for instance if your intention is to simply have your staff trained around this issue and you start to implement metrics around it that are uh, purely quantitative in nature, i.e. how many people have you trained, what level of management has received that training. If that becomes the metrics by which uh, you view the training Mm -hmm. and that effort to be successful or not, that, to my mind, is going down the wrong track, Right. right? right? You have to recognize that a lot of the conversations around anti-Asian hate or systemic racism writ large are require a profound shift in consciousness around that question. Hmm. And therefore, the, metric, the metrics don't match a very reductive uh, A plus B equals C. It requires an understanding that creating a space where people are having a conversation isn't neat, it isn't orderly, it isn't hmm. linear that you need to create some capacity and scope for the messiness to actually happen. Hmm. So what does that practically look like? It looks like trying to find ways to insert this conversation into line management discussions, right? So mm-hmm. if people are doing performance reviews, how do, you, how do you insert questions around inclusivity in the one-on-one dialogue that people are having? How do you also include it 
in the team conversations that are happening? Mm -hmm. How do you include those considerations in ways in which people are assessed and then promoted? How do you create space where uh, some of these questions around inclusivity then touch on outward facing issues, right? Because there's there's Mm -hmm. a lot of attention on internal dynamics, but outward client facing issues also get triggered by inclusivity. And so in what way are you thinking about it externally facing as well, not just as Hmm. an internal dialogue? So there's so many different dimensions to this, but you only get at it if you start thinking holistically about all the the ways in which one arrives at the conversation such that it actually Hmm. shifts consciousness. Yeah, it's really, it's really, I mean, in some ways it's, it's daunting, right? Because it's not just a box you can check to your point. It's not just a number you can, you know, a metric you can achieve. It really is. I I like the way you said, you know, you have to be comfortable with the kind of messiness of the process. And really, it sounds like the leader, if you want to lead, you've got to kind of embrace that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, uh, and this, this sort of segues nicely to, you know, the other thing that I think is, really key for how a leader can arrive at that insight. I think that one of the things that I've learned for myself is the importance of slowing down, that there is such a thirst and quest to get to the next thing Mm -hmm. in our corporate and working culture, that as a result of that compulsion, there is very little space created for reflection Mm-hmm. and for slowing down. So mm-hmm. if your orientation is the next thing, and it's constantly the next thing, then you bring it back to, say, inclusive leadership as a concrete example, then, you know, you'll start to subscribe to a box-ticking exercise. And it's it's not going to really have the, the deeper, it's, you're not going to infuse the deeper meaning to the thing because you're constantly looking at the future, the next thing, instead of being focused on the present moment. How do we make this interaction amongst staff, outward facing towards clients, the most uh, inclusive that it can be, that requires slowing down and mm-hmm. giving the space and time for that to happen. This, this slow concept is so antithetical to how we operate in business. You know, businesses, all right, where's the quarter? Where's the milestone? How do we fix this? How do you reconcile or how should leaders reconcile the the kind of pervasive mindset of speed of action with going slow? My observation is that leaders I've been very up close and and, um, connected to, when they operate with such speed and pace, they inevitably drop balls. Hmm. And I think that that's going to be true under any circumstance. Mm -hmm. A leader can't always keep all the balls in the Mm -hmm. air but there is a greater likelihood of balls dropping when they don't take the time to make the decisions that they make so i know Mm -hmm. that there's this compulsion of like meeting quarters quarterly targets etc but my experience is that if you take the time to make some of the key decisions that you're making it's only going to enhance the quality of said decisions Mm -hmm. So having, you can actually achieve things more quickly if you are slower Uh yeah. how you go back. And, and, you know, just in your own journey, you know, one of the things you mentioned when we were preparing for this podcast is this concept of the domination of the monkey mind. Can you, t- and, and the need to slow down to 
to overcome that. Can you delve into that a bit? I was fascinated when you said that. Yeah, I mean, I I had the privilege of being able to participate in a in a ten day silence retreat, the Vipassana retreat in India at first instance, and then volunteered at one in, outside of Toronto in Egbert. Uh, and these retreats have been radical in both what they offered me and in the import for my life. So it's where I really started to develop my meditation practice. Uh, and it was during that first 10-day silence retreat where it became clear like how busy the mind is. Mm-hmm. It just constantly is working. And that monkey mind, if you, I, I personally required the 10 days uh, <laughs> for it to exhaust itself Hmm. such that I was finally able to quiet it, right? Uh, I know people go on, you know, these two-day or three-day weekend retreats, similar to what I'm describing, but shorter. And, you know, those are all helpful for rejuvenation, for sure. Uh, But what I experienced was that it took about six days before my monkey mind just exhausted itself. And then it was finally able to just be quiet. And... It took that long because our minds are so powerful. They are so antsy and anxious. And it was only through that space that I created for myself to slow down that I was able to quiet the mind. And of course, you get back into the world and it gets monkey-ish again. (laughs) Uh, And therefore, one of the recommendations I have for everyone, not just leaders, everyone, but particularly leaders, is that if you want to be reflective, you have to build the space for it in your day. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. And you have to fiercely guard it. As somebody who is in a lot of meetings all the time, I know how easy it is to just have your day filled up, especially during this pandemic mm-hmm. era with so many Zoom calls. Your your day gets filled up with meetings constantly. And there's a, a real incentive to re, you know release that hour you might have carved out for reflection to fill it in with that additional meaning that, has to happen because so-and-so requires you Mm -hmm. to be there. But I'm telling you, if you don't guard that time zealously, it will just get eaten up by other things. So you have to prioritize Mm -hmm. it. You have to prioritize that time for reflection. I I use it to meditate. Maybe meditation is not everybody's cup of tea. Whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you feel like you do, I need to do in order to be reflective. And to take that moment to slow down in order to make better decisions, you do that. But you just have to carve out that time and 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 zealously guard it. Well, and I think it's it fits with the first point you're making around the need to intentionally create space for people to be seen and heard. I mean, we do go from thing to thing to thing. And intention, whether it's that or it's the intention of how you approach your quest for inclusivity or intention of how you think about what you're going to communicate, you need the time to think. I mean, I I know in our work, for example, prepping executives for, you know, whether it's a presentation or investor call, so much time is given to just going over the deck, going over the slides, and instead of taking the time to say, what are we trying to achieve here? And so I think, you know, yeah, even if you can't go to a week long meditation retreat, you know, that it's worth, worth the time. There, there's a podcast I was listening to with someone, I've got to find the book, who talked about this concept. It's Ezra Klein's podcast. He's with the New York Times. And he interviewed someone who's talked about what he calls the hyperactive hive mind. And this is the idea that between Slack and email 
and text and Zoom, we plug into this hyperactive hive mind where there is no space for reflection, no space to think, and that it actually is exhausting for people and they become less productive. So I think, you know, your comment around this need to intentionally protect time for reflection is so powerful. Yeah, no, that that um, podcast uh, with Ezra and I think it was Cal Newper. Yes, I, yes, I that's right. It's Cal, yes. Heard that. Yeah, great, great, great conversation that he had. And, and just to bring these points together, I mean, to put it another way, what I'm talking about is the importance to really hear and see yourself, hmm. right? There's also that piece where, you know, we, as you say, whether it's Slack and all these other ways in which our attention is distracted and diverted, um, we don't create the space to really hear and see ourselves. What do I really think about this thing? Mm-hmm. What What are my views and thoughts on it? How can I consciously and intentionally explore mm-hmm. what kind of intention I want to bring to the to the decision I'm about to make? How do right. I bring my full authentic self to that decision point? Because oftentimes that's not actually what we do. We're just so quick to then make the next decision uh, to get to the one after that, that we're not really even sure sometimes why we're doing the things that we're doing. Yeah, that that time uh, and that self-reflection time is so critical. And, and, you know, the last thing I want to delve into is something you mentioned, you know, as you begin to do these things about but this idea of stepping into your own power. You know, once you once you are being intentional, once you are slowing down, what does it mean to step into your own power? I think stepping into your own power means recognizing that with the things that you have control over, i.e. your action and your reaction, there's actually a great deal of power that resides in that. That (laughs) how you arrive in any particular relationship or setting, you get to choose that for yourself. That's Mm -hmm. the choice you get to have. And if you're choosing to connect with others because of that hard inner work you do, then you will inevitably inspire others. Hmm. But that's, that's the relationship between these things. And stepping into your own power means recognizing that there is so much within us that's there to offer. And because of insecurity, because of um, the need to please others, connected to insecurity, we often forget how much we have to offer. And we Hmm. sometimes forget how valuable we are. And if you fully connect your conscious energies to the truth of that, then there is amazing things that will unfold for you in your leadership as a result. Is that something that you've done in your own life? I mean, can you bring it back to your story? Did you have to step into your own power and how did it work? Yeah, I, I struggled with this, actually. Um, and it's, it's how I've arrived at this insight. I struggled with it in that I, I didn't have that confidence hmm. for a very long time. Uh, I was ambitious, of course, and had, had garnered success. And yet, there was this fear that was preventing me from really owning my own power. And as a result, you know, there, there's been, yeah, and I'm not even ashamed to say this, like multiple instances where I have either been let go or not had a contract renewed Mm -hmm. because of different circumstances. I connected to this point of 
not having a full appreciation of who I was and what I had to offer. Mm-hmm. And I think the universe is always looking to teach us something. Hmm. And I feel like if you are open to that lesson and learn it, then, you know, then you move on. But if you're not, the universe has a funny way of hmm. having you relive another experience that will then teach you <laughs> that lesson. <laughs> and if you don't learn it the first time, it comes back harder and harder and harder the next time until we learn. And I think that's true for societies, but I definitely think it's true for individuals as well. Hmm. And so the, so the invocation for, for, for me to others, as, as it has been for me to myself, is to remain open to what it is that the universe is trying to teach mm-hmm. us and to really try to deal with that lesson head on and not try to avoid hmm. it. Was there a moment where you said, okay, I've learned this lesson. I'm ready to step into my own power? Yeah, I think it's when I, I left Open Society Foundation to start my own consultancy. I realized I have a lot to offer. And uh, this is a moment for me to exhibit and express my own leadership. And that's what compelled me to leave a comfortable environment such as Open Society and strike out on my own, Mm -hmm. connect with a wonderful firm like the Humphrey Group, along with helping other institutions like the American Civil Liberties Union, public health organizations here in the United States. I have something to offer. Mm -hmm. I'm offering it now. And I'm flourishing as a result. Hmm. The practice is going well, but I, I'm, I'm in this wonderful space where I don't have to choose with my value alignment with the people that I'm working with. There hmm. is such alignment with my personal values and the work that I'm doing that honestly work doesn't even feel like work. It, it just feels like a hmm. wonderful opportunity to connect with really remarkable human beings. Well, we're, we're lucky that you stepped into your own power because we get, I wouldn't have had you on this podcast. We wouldn't have had you doing this great work around inclusion uh, with our, with our clients and, and more broadly. So it sounds like, you know, the, the key is to know to kind of, when you take that pause, when you do that self-reflection, maybe when you sit with that silence, you, to realize that you bring value to understand that, you know, you're, you're, a leader who can make an impact in whatever way you've reflected on and then to embrace that and go for it. Exactly. That's the key point. Like, and embrace it and seize it and own it because that is within your power. You get to choose that for yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's, you know, just to kind of put a bow on it. When we talk about leading authentically, it really, and being a self-aware leader, it starts with knowing what you stand for, knowing what kind of impact you want to have aligning that with the organization that you're with, or in your case, choosing to go on your own. And, uh, and then you're able to do so with, with great conviction. Exactly. Well, this is, this is hugely valuable. I mean, you've, um, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your own journey. I mean, it's, it, it's amazing. You know, you've, um, you've, uh, incredibly credentialed, but you've obviously, you haven't always taken the easy road, you know, leaving a kind of a straightforward Bay Street career to pursue what you knew you were passionate about, dealing with challenges along the way, and now stepping to your own power and taking this next courageous step. And it's great to hear you thriving. Thank you so much for having me, Bart. I really appreciate this opportunity to both connect with you and to offer some thoughts that I've been having for a very long time. Absolutely. And we'll, um, We'll put a link in the show notes to your own practice. You know, if anyone wants to talk further with you, 
you know, we'll make sure that we can put a link to your, your site and, and I'm sure you'll be getting some contacts. Great. Okay. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for coming. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Sanjay, one of our um, impressive consultants at the Humphrey Group, his life experience, you know, the perspective he brings both from his uh, legal work as well as um, the work he's done around self-awareness, I think is just so relevant today for leaders who must know themselves before they can um, really lead inspiration. So I I took a lot away from that. Continuing on the theme of uh, delving into the talent that we have at the Humphrey Group, next uh, episode, I'm delighted to share with you a conversation with Christopher Zabane. Chris uh, has been a longtime member of the Humphrey Group and uh, has done a lot of work around mindfulness and how it integrates with leadership. And he's got a great life story that he shares with us on the pod as well. Some really practical things that you can do to center yourself and, uh, and demonstrate leadership. So tune in next time for the Inspired Podcast.